<clears throat> Isaiah chapter 51 this evening. I wanted to do another topical, but was led not to. I filed a complaint <laughs> with the Lord. The Faithful and the Faithless, that's the title of this evening's consideration. This section begins with the prophet reminding and encouraging the dedicated believers, which is, is kind of nice. You know, he, he talks to his people because we're getting so many rebukes as we go through the prophets. And he begins by taking them back to their roots and calls them to that kind of courage that's built by faith. It's a beneficial practice for all of us to go back to our roots, to where the foundations of our conversion, our faith, it was very exciting, usually. In verse 5, God assures his people, his servants, the righteous Jews, that justice will prevail and the Gentiles will come to him. Uh, they missed that as the generations went by in the days of Paul. You know, that was one of the big struggles. By verse 6, he fast forwards to the, fast forwards to the final days of judgment on earth. And then in verse 7, he comes back to the living, uh, those at the time that the prophet put these prophecies in writing, and telling them, don't fear men, I'm with you. Again, he's speaking in these first 13 verses directly to those who are believers, because there are so many unbelievers. By verse 8, he sums up the fate of the faithless, the judgments that will befall them, and he brings up the salvation of the saved. Uh, salvation is the reason why there are people saved from judgment. By verse 9, the prophet calls out to Yahweh to act now on behalf of his people. And by verse 12, he instructs and exhorts, God does, he instructs and exhorts the believers to be brave while we are on our way to heaven. Believers are heaven bound. We are that we get it. We're on the flight, and that flight is predestined to go to heaven because of what the Lord has achieved. It is important to notice by the time we get to verse thirteen that the Lord God Himself associates the fear of man with forgetting Him. In other words, uh, being afraid of people causing one to depart. From the faith. Fear enough can steal faith. One of the great lessons of this chapter. The remainder of this chapter. He overviews Israel's afflictions. And her final deliverance. Now most commentators. Going through the latter section of Isaiah. After chapter 40. Uh, I think they overstate. Uh, the Babylonian captivity. I think that Isaiah was not as focused on the Babylonian captives. There's some of that. Uh, and it was refreshing, it is refreshing, to find other notable commentators that um, agree with me or I with them. Uh, I haven't figured out which one came first. Anyway, ultimately, it's always about faith and faithlessness. It always comes down to that, no matter what. God can be speaking about end times, past times, present times. It's still a matter of faith. Where do you stand with God? 
Now we look at verse 1. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek Yahweh, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Sounds a little derogatory at the end, but it's not. Where he says, listen to me. It's not Isaiah, it's God. Uh, The pronoun me is identified in verse 2 when God begins to make it clear through the prophet, that he is speaking directly to his people. And uh, he is sending them back to Abraham. Now, he's got to use scripture to do that, or else there'd be no knowledge. Well, there could have been just word of mouth passed down, but they had the scripture at this time. And so here's a call to the righteous to have courage from faith. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. And then he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Now, rock here is metaphor for Abraham and Sarah, not the coming Christ. Which, if, if you just stopped at verse 1, as a Christian, you would likely associate the rock with being our rock, Christ, as he sometimes is metaphorically referred to. But context is very important. If you have context... Uh, Or without context, you have pretext. Text without context is pretext. Text without context is misleading. It's wrong. So you have to say, well, what's what's going on? What's the whole picture here? And what verse 2 tells us, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. There's their rock as a people, as a race. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. The fact that he brings up Sarah, God is pointing out to his people, he's reminding them that what is impossible with people is not impossible with him. It's very difficult to trust God when you're falling apart, life's falling apart around you, and God seems to be apathetic uh, or just inactive. Well, delayed help from God is not the same thing as no help from God. Sarah waited at least 75 years. She, she had her child Isaac at 90, and you factor in what she had. Let's say she's 15, 16 at that time uh, when she you know, started thinking about having children. So that's where I get the 75. It's, it, it's not entirely random, but it's arbitrary. She was 90 when she had Isaac. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He's talking about Abraham. Promise He promised Abraham to be a great nation and a blessing to the entire world. That the entire world through the ages to come would be blessed through Abraham. This is going to get some interesting stuff here. Stuff that I like. Well, with the exception of born-again Christians, why does the world not consider Israel a blessing? What's their problem? Well, we know. Well... The answer also lies in the future. So I need the Bible to define them, to, to explain the Bible to me. Why have, when will they be a blessing? Well, they're going to be a global blessing directly. They are indirectly in that Messiah has come from the Jew. But the world doesn't appreciate that. When Israel accepts Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah the entire world will be blessed. It was the kingdom age. Therefore, since they have rejected 
as a people, not individually, there's many individual Jewish people who are Christians, but those who have rejected Christ and largely vilified him as a false prophet, they can't really be a blessing. They have become an anti-blessing to the lost side of the world. Not to the Christian. This is the world view. Why, why is not Israel a blessing? Because Israel has rejected their Messiah. And thus the church has, is now the, the primary light bearer to the world of the word of God. Now the nation Israel not being pro-Jesus and the Jews at large not, the whole world gangs up on them. This is a satanic thing. It's more than human. There are humans responsible and guilty, but there is also satanic activity. Satan wants to purge the planet of the Jews. Islam is currently the dominant instigator that uh, on the human level, but Satan is behind it all. Now, Satan's going to fail at this. Being the father of insanity, he himself is insane. He does not see it that way. He thinks he's going to succeed. In 1994, Rwanda had a civil war going on. And the Hutu tribes were trying to wipe out the Watusi tribes. They did not succeed, but they slaughtered almost a million of them with machetes, going into villages, going into churches, and just wholesale slaughter. Had they succeeded, had the Hutus succeeded in exterminating the Watusi not a single portion of scripture would have been affected. It would have been horrible, uh, savage, and all those things, but it would not have affected faith of scripture. Had anyone succeeded in wiping out the Jews, it would have collapsed scripture. And Satan knows this. And he's trying to do it with all that he has. So, watching, you know, I, I don't watch mainstream news, I try not to, but I do watch some of the things that are posted by other sources, and I'm watching how the Israel, the Israeli IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, they're called Israeli Defense Forces because they don't attack anyone unless they are attacked. They defend themselves, and they want to take the war to the other, to their attacker's land. They're going to drop bombs, they want to drop them on the attacker's territory. Well, I'm watching this, all of the pundits and, you know, well, the Russians and this and the Iranians and then, you know, Yosemite Sam coming from the north. And I'm saying, you ain't going to touch those Jews. You ain't kill a few of them. They're going to win. You're not going to stop them. They're unstoppable. And I want to back that up with scripture. Why is it that Antichrist wants to make a covenant with them? Because he can't beat them in combat. That's why. He's got to come up with a slick way around to get in there to destroy them. I was going to preach on Balaam and Balak, and I can weasel it in and, and, and not get any flack from the Lord on it, because it's part of it. Because that's what Balak wanted to do. He wanted to destroy the Jewish people. He called Balaam, he hired him, cursed these people, and he couldn't do it. Because the same voice, I'm giving away my sermon, so I'm going to have to come up with another one. But anyway... The same voice that controlled the donkey was the same one, the same, well, the same person controlling the voice of the donkey was the same one controlling the voice of Balaam. But what did Balaam end up doing? 
He said, listen, if you want to, if you want to get, if you want to beat these Jews, you've got to get me off this mountain and you've got to get your people into that valley with those Jews and beat them there. You need to seduce them from their faith. And it almost worked were it not for righteous Phineas. So the Jews, yeah, they're not going anywhere. They've got to live through this horrible uh, anti-Jewish world uh, that we lived in. I, I just... I'm killing my time with these anecdotal stories, not mine. This one. This, this Muslim woman in Indiana backed her car through the glass windows of this storefront trying to wipe out the Jews that were there to find out it was an anti-Semitism group. <laughs> window. She, she got the wrong window. Anyway, she'd be going to jail, I hope, maybe. Anyway, Luke chapter 1. Here is the father of John the Baptist. His name is Zacharias. He's a priest. And he makes this prayer that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Why? You're supposed to be a blessing from Abraham. And, uh, you know, at that, that, that time it wasn't because they rejected Messiah, but, but they were largely disobedient through their history, through idolatry. So all of this, um, where I'm bringing this up is because God is saying to his people, remember Abraham and his faith. And I want you to get some of that faith. Abraham was supposed to be a blessing. I want you to be a blessing. But sin has gotten in the way of all of it. And it's a warning to we Christians. Don't you take your faith lightly. We are at war constantly. Spiritual war. And uh, don't for one minute let your guard down. Don't live in fear, but don't live recklessly either. Verse 3, For Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Well, that's what's coming. It's not yet happened. Now, it's interesting that Zion, uh, here, he mentions Zion, the name of Yahweh's earthly uh, dwelling, the tabernacle, and then that's extended to Jerusalem, and then extended to Judah, then the promised land, and the people. So when you say Zion, it, it has a, um, it's, the definition is extended. Uh, figurative, figure, it speaks of Jerusalem here. <laughs> Figuratively, it speaks of Jerusalem. Um, so, but he's going to later refer to Zion as the people. We'll get to that later on in this, this chapter. Well, he says, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. This is what God wants to do. The consolation of Israel, as quoted by Simeon, when they brought the baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, uh, he applied it, Simeon did. Taking up the child, we read this in Luke chapter 2, and behold, as Simeon speaking, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. You know, when you're born again, you just love when God says the Holy Spirit's on. You love the person whom the Holy Spirit's on. You just have this bond and it, it, it goes anywhere in the world that you come across a Christian with the fill of the Spirit. It's an instant thing. It's just a love connection. And you can look backwards in history and see them in Scripture. I mean, who doesn't love David running at Goliath and taking him out? 
Well, it continues here. He will make, well, I know who doesn't. Sorry, I know the answer, but what Christian? He will make her wilderness like Eden. So there are some geographical changes coming to Israel. When Christ returns to the earth, his feet will touch down first upon the Mount of Olives. And that is the exact point from where he ascended into heaven. So where he departed from, he's returning to. Zechariah 14, 4 is where we get some of this. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And so as the mountains separate, there's going to be this access point towards Jordan. As where it's going to face. Now, Eden represents the ideal environment on earth, not heaven. Of course, heaven is, transcends Eden. The New Jerusalem that we talked about last, last Wednesday is much more than Eden could ever be. But from, on, from earth's perspective, Eden is the top of the line. So prophetically, the return to Eden is metaphor for a relationship a restored relationship with God, because before they were cast out of Eden, uh, before the fall, they they walked with God. He mentions Thanksgiving here in verse 3. Once restored and comforted, Zion will be full of worship and song. And Ezekiel refers to, in Ezekiel 20, verse 6, he refers to the promised land as the glory of all lands. The prophets were able to see far beyond the time they lived in. And that's a miracle. You know, it's like an unsung miracle to be able to see the future with such certainty. You can prophesy about it as though it's already happened. There's nobody here can do that. Well, you can if God lets you, but he's he's not how the church is set up. Uh, There are some exceptions, but overall, the role of the church is the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in accordance to the word of God. We're not here to to go around healing everybody. We'd love to. Sometimes it does happen. It's always the Lord's doing, but our primary role is the salvation of souls. What does a prophet a man if you heal him and he still goes to hell? Uh, Not very much. Well, anyway, uh, so there's room for miracles for sure, but there's more room for getting the work done that we've been assigned to do and that is to, by faith, uh, I, you know, you shall receive power to do what? To be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And we read about that in the book of Acts. Anyway, verse 4, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light on the peoples. Uh, what did the non fundamental Jews do with such verses as this. All of these superlative verses from the prophets that were their verses to us in those days, just the prophecies. What did they do with them? Well, I'm going to take the witness of Amos, Micah, and Zechariah. They tell us what the non-fundamental Jews did. When I say non-fundamental, the ones that did not hold to their scripture. A fundamental Christian is one that adheres to the Bible. How else would you know how to be a Christian, what a Christian is, without the Word of God? 
Well, Amos says this about their behavior. You gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. So you stumbled those who were trying to dedicate themselves to God and you told the preachers to shut up. That's how they handled such verses. You know, they hated Amos. <laughs> He's from the south and he was ministering in the north and they wanted him to go back to the south. Micah rings in. He tells us, and both Amos and Micah ministered were contemporaries of Isaiah at some point. He says, her heads, her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on Yahweh and say, is not Yahweh among us? No harm can come to us. They're delusional. They think because they own a Bible and they're God's people that, okay, I could just do what I want to do. I can, I can disrespect God to his face. I don't care. It's not going to harm me. That's why God dealt with this. Because an unbelieving world would be watching and say, man, if, if their God lets them get away with this stuff, then I guess anything goes. But he doesn't. He's a holy and righteous God. And that's why the prophets warned of doom. The final one on giving us a, uh, a view of how God's word was handled by the people is much later after Amos and Zechariah, Amos and Micah, then Zechariah comes along some Oh, 400 years later, almost. But they refused to heed, shrug their shoulders, and stop their ears so that they could not hear. The faithless have inoculated themselves against the voice of God. They've, made, they've set up all sorts of fancy barriers so God's word can't get to them. They become delusional. Spiritual, spiritual sociopaths. They function in God's creation, and yet they can never touch the heart of God. This, can, this happens. There are people that are like this today. Facts mean nothing to them. The only thing that means something to them is whatever they want. He says that they would, he says by his presence, it, when he comes to establish his kingdom, that his justice will rest as light, as a light of the people, peoples, plural. So once the Jews are restored and comforted, Zion will be full of worship and song, as I mentioned earlier. This in contrast to Isaiah 50, verse 11, where it was the... the Sparks of man's generated wisdom and intelligence. Compared to God's light, man without God, his light are like sparks. That's, and you, you don't get much light from a spark. Even with a high-powered, even with a pneumatic grinder, you're not going to get enough light to do much. Anyway, verse 5, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms will judge the people's. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Now, we've covered the coastlands before. Not going to waste, uh, take, not waste, but not take time to, to repeat that. I'll move on here in verse 5. Here is God's grace doing for his people what they don't deserve. And that's the fact of all of God's people. 
what uh, they could not do for themselves is make themselves right with God. They could only receive the solution. That's what a believer is. The divine pronoun me shows up four times in verses 4 and 5. The divine first person possessive adjective shows up seven times. So whenever that happens, you know God is emphasizing something. And in this case, it's his presence. It's him. My righteousness, my salvation, my arms. We're in verse 4. My people, my justice, my nation. Oh Lord, we get it and we love it. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die like in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Well, that's last Wednesday's message again, Revelation 21, 1 and 2 Peter 3, 10, or other places, there are more, but uh, what we covered last week covers that verse. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. So now again, he's addressing those who, the word is in their heart, versus someone who just is in their head and hands maybe, but it ain't in their heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The heart really covers all of it. When the Jews and even the, the Greeks, when they spoke of the heart, it meant the, usually in context, the entire person. Of course, there's a physical heart, but we're using it in the context of spiritual application. And when the Old Testament and New Testament speak of the heart, usually it's the entirety of the person. The person's mind, their thinking, their feelings, and their will. What do they do with their feelings and their intelligence? That's the will, the heart. So uh, here in verse 7, they're faced with opposition. And they are called to faith-built courage. You can build courage on other things. You can use drugs. You can use alcohol. You can use uh, um, a coat of, you know, Bushido or something. You can use other things to get courage. There are unbelievers who have a lot of courage. But God wants his people to have courage based on a relationship with him. And this is he's going to start stressing that in a minute. Psalm 56, verse 11. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, who wrote that? King David. King David is the one that, when he took out Goliath, what was the, what was the righteous indignation that spelled the doom of the Philistine. Here's Goliath who struts out, you know, blaspheming Yahweh, and the wrong guy heard it on the wrong day for Goliath. And David, probably 16, 17 years old, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that so blasphemes the Lord? Where's my sling? Ah! (laughs) And, And what happens five smooth stones later? Uh, the last thing that went through Goliath's mind was that rock from David. Anyway, verse 8, make no mistake, those Philistines, they were evil people. God itemizes what they were doing and why they were being judged for their behavior. And today, there are no Philistines. The Palestinians are not Philistines. No connection. They're Arabs. They're 
they're, they're Muslim Arabs, and that's about it. And they come from uh, the combination of Esau, Ishmael, and Malachites, and whoever else lives in that area. But uh, they're trying to say, we're the Philistines. Well, even if you were, you, the Philistines only had a small portion of the promised land. They didn't have it all. There were other people living in that land, too. Uh, so it's a, but we know, we know how it goes. We, we can't, ex- as Benjamin Netanyahu said a few years back, Israel is guilty until proven guilty. And uh, just, we know evil is in this world. Verse 8, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. God is always telling his people, live like you're going to be in eternity. Stop clinging to this life. I've built you to cling to it to some degree. But don't overdo it. Second Thessalonians. The Thessalonian church was made from persecuted leaders. Paul and Barnabas showed up, beaten at Philippi. They end up in, their next stop was Thessalonica. They made converts there. And those converts became persecuted. Even once Paul and Silas were chased out. And Paul writes to them, the first letter he writes to them, about persecution and, and things like that. In the second letter, he deals with the end times. But anyway, he writes this to them, that second Thessalonian letter, the first chapter, verse 9 These, talking about those persecuting the Thessalonian Christians, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And he gets a little bit more intense in that section. I just wanted to take that that part of it. But he's saying, yeah, there's, there's consequence to behavior. There's permanent salvation for the friends of Christ. There's permanent doom for the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ. When Jesus, quoting this scripture, applying it to those who refuse to correct their behavior, he says this three times in this one sermon, right in back of each other, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. He's talking about hell, the spiritual abode of the wicked, the eternal spiritual abode. Isaiah, he will, his last chapter of this prophecy, of his prophecy, chapter 66, the last verse, he closes his book with a threat to the wicked. He said, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So God is saying, you know, Satan's not goofing around. Neither am I. Moths and worms, they do their work inconspicuously. But they destroy efficiently nonetheless. There's the old black and white British movie, Mrs. Nineveh. I really like the movie. And there's a part two. And there's one scene where the husband is dancing with her at a ball or something. And he says, well, my, the moths didn't get to my suit. And then the camera shows his back and just these holes. <laughs> and if you've ever, you know, had moth damage, it's infuriating. You can't sue them. Or you can, but you're not going to get anything. It's, you know, anyway, I, I can't stand when you get a nice wool jacket out. It's got a big hole. 
Well, imagine in the days of Christ, you, you know, everything was susceptible without the cedar. Anyway, coming back to this, so I feel like an old man up here rambling on. <laughs> verse, no, 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 no. Why not say, no, pastor, no, we love it. You're just that. Anyway, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generation of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Well, he starts out awake, awake, ringing the alarm, you know, sounding the alarm. Faith calls out to God. In, in times of adversity, that's what the Christians do. Well, what Isaiah is doing, he's calling out and he's citing God's past deliverance. He says, hey, you've helped before. We, we encourage us to come to you, and I'm coming to you on behalf of the people. Well, five times we get awake in this chapter, in verse 9 and 17. Well, obviously, it's anthropomorphic. It is not, um, God doesn't sleep. He's not really trying to wake him up. As Elijah on Mount Carmel, maybe your God is sleeping. You know, Maybe he's on a trip. He's just mocking them. But here... Um, it's, as I mentioned, anthropomorphic. It is assigning to God human characteristics so that we can get an idea of, the, of, of what's happening. And here he's trying to convey the urgency to get God to, to work on behalf of the righteousness. So, uh, though it is not to be taken literally, awake, awake, because he's not sleeping, it is not to be taken casually either. Uh, the prophet is making his point. Now, when he mentions Rahab, we have the second one tonight of context uh, and uh, text, context, pretext. You've got to keep the text in context or you'll end up mis misunderstanding. Uh, Rahab is not the woman of Joshua 2. It's a different Hebrew word. Phonetically in the English, it's Rahab, but it's, it's, it's not the same. Uh, it's not her. He used it in chapter 30 to, as a nickname for Egypt. The psalmist will use it in Psalm 87 and 89. And it speaks of, uh, symbolically of any evil power overcome by God. This Rahab, this Hebrew word. Now, you wouldn't learn that unless you did your research. And, you're not, you know, I'm not saying, oh, shame on you, you should have researched. I'm not at all saying that. I am just pointing out how much work is involved and digging into scripture. And then what do you do with it? Well, one of the things I think that happens to the Christian when they scrutinize God's word is they learn to properly be scrutinized by God's word. And that's where work gets done. Uh, you cannot have muscle um, growth without um, straining the muscle, without working that, that muscle. Uh, and that's the same for the brain. Although some people, I think, have a muscle for a brain and Anyway, verse 10, are you not the one, who, now this is Isaiah still appealing, calling out to the Lord and publishing this. He says, are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Well, we know that's the Red Sea or Yam Suf, uh, the Sea of Reeds likely where they crossed over. Um, he's referring to the Jews escaping the army of Pharaoh when they came out of Egypt. And so he reminds the Lord about these things. 
he will use the he will mention the arm of Yahweh three times in this chapter, and whenever it's repeated like that, there's an emphasis there to be had. Verse eleven. So the random, so the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and singing shall flee away. And so here he is sort of giving us an overview of, awake Lord, come to the help of your righteous. And then eventually the Lord will help and we will be singing in heaven. But of course he's passing by thousands of years and millions of, of, of apostates. Uh, but he's got his eyes focused on the end result for those who are submitted in their hearts to God. Uh, you know, the flesh won't submit, but the, the heart will, and the heart will bring much of the flesh into submission. Uh, verse 11, so the ransomed, oh, I didn't do that, I did verse 10. Uh, so the ransomed of Yahweh shall return to us. I, I did do that, didn't I? I can never hear what you're saying. We need to have little signs you hold up. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so coming back to verse 11. The consolation of Messiah. Uh, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That alone makes heaven worth it. And it's going to be so much more than that. Heaven is really given to us not by what is there so much as what is not there. That is what the Bible teaches, uh, really teaches a lot about heaven. The coming consolation of Messiah. And so in verses 1 through 8, we have the call to be courageous because of faith. In verses 9 through 11, we have the call to God by faith. In verses 12 through 16, which we are just going to open up in a minute, we're going to get the comfort of God to the faithful. So faith is the dominant thought. Faithfulness over faithlessness. Uh, Very time-consuming for us. A lot of work goes into that. Why does our gratitude please God? Why does praise please God? Is he just, you know, you know well, I, I need attention? Um, not at all. It's because it shows that we have the right perspective of what's going on in creation. It tells us that, yeah, there's not a lot to praise in this life. There is some, but the big praise is coming in heaven. The Jewish feast, the final of their seven feasts in a year, in festival, I'll use that word, because not all of, they're not feasts like they sit down to this sumptuous meal. It was a festival, a recognition. The big one, the Feast of Tabernacles, was just a seven-day f- food feast of joy. Uh, you know, they passed the Day of Atonement, and they, you know, they moved past all of the the holidays, the Passover celebration, and they get to the Feast of Feast. And it speaks of heaven, that when we're just going to be out of here and at the Lord's table, and we're going to do other things too. You'll probably, I don't know, probably draw portraits of me when you get to heaven. What else are you going to do with your free time? Uh, Anyway, (laughs) the the absurd really does help us sometimes understand What's not going to happen? Coming back to the, now we come to verse 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and the son of man who will be made like grass? Now we have the third context. 
And this one is the Son of Man. Well, if you're in Ezekiel, most of the time he's talking about Messiah. And Christ himself takes the title upon himself. But here is, the context is clear. He's, not, he's saying, Who are, why are you afraid of people that have come from people? That's just a very loose translation. Now, verse 13. This is connected to verse 12. And you forget Yahweh your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth... You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? So this is, remember Isaiah his whole life under the threat of Assyrian invasion. And I believe that's what he's talking about. But he says here in verse 13, connected to verse 12, fear can cause one to abandon God. He just says it right out. And you forget the Lord your maker. Well, we love 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Well, that doesn't always come easily when you're under pressure. You've got to fight for it. You know, the narrow gate that Christ talked about entering in implies squeeze. You're going to have to squeeze through that one. Uh, So don't be surprised when things don't come easily as a Christian, things of faith. You've got to fight for it. It's worth it. The alternatives make it necessary because they're unacceptable. So God gives perspective here. Uh, For Moses, it was Pharaoh's Egypt. For Isaiah and his generation, it was Sennacherib's Assyrian kingdom. Uh, And then, for us, it is the world. And that world includes those who try to get the Nazarite to drink. The Nazarites were supposed to abstain from drinking alcohol. And yet people were trying to stumble them. Well, today, pornography is everywhere. And sometimes it's stark, sometimes it's subtle. It's everywhere. The world is against us. It's this weight pushing on faith. It's bad enough we've got to deal with our own flesh and Satan. Then we've got this gang coming our way. Well, most of us were once part of the world, part of that gang that made life more difficult uh, for those who love the Lord. Verse 14, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. This guy's trying to survive. Well, he's contrasting the faithful with the faithless. Exiled Jews scrambled to comply in order to survive. Well, wait a minute. Well, before I get to the what captives we're talking about, the pits were usually empty water cisterns um, because cisterns hold water, and when they either crack or leak, they become jails to hold prisoners. You find that in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, where he tells it, says it right out. Apparently, Isaiah has the northern kingdom, or Judah, in mind under the Assyrian invasions. The northern kingdom was wiped out in his lifetime. Because we don't know when he penned all of this, if he's looking back or forward, but we knew it happened in his lifetime. Certainly, the Judah suffering, Jerusalem didn't fall, but all the rest of Judah was invaded by the Assyrians. Well, God's people are not supposed to be exiles. 
This is part of the point the prophet is making. We're not supposed to be exiles. We have the promised land. But they became exiles because they departed from the Lord. Why? Well, we went through that in Kings. They were afraid of men. And they sent to Egypt and they did this, but they wouldn't call on Yahweh. And when Jeremiah comes along over 100 years later, they're going to they're think he's a traitor for telling them to trust God and stop resisting Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets thrown into a, a cistern and almost dies there. So, um, this is the point that he, he makes by contrast. Now, I mentioned to you, I'm not the only one. I stumbled on it without Matyar, Alec Matyar, who I'm going to quote in a minute. And I, I just want some credit for that. <laughs> it's a one thing about Bible study is you come across these things that you can't find anywhere else. And you, you know, the Lord gave me that. Then you find one guy's got it too. It's like, man, I thought I was the only one. Well, anyway, uh, so here's Alec Matya. And I wouldn't recommend Matya's commentary on Isaiah unless you want to read 500 pages and you have an outlet. You probably, uh, this is a, you know, you would say it's not a derogatory to say it's more like professional material. It's for pastors, those who have the time to study and the outlet. Well, anyway, he writes this about this tendency of good Bible commentators. Because most of the really good ones, they all do it. Except me and Matyar. <laughs> commentators fly in the face of the evidence when they make this verse refer to the Babylonian exile. Where we know that life was far from oppressive. Jeremiah 29, 4 and 7. Remember Jeremiah said, build houses for yourself, make gardens. Enjoy the life there. And Matthew goes on. And in fact became so homelike that in the event few could uproot themselves to return to Zion. So when we get to Ezra, it tells us that Zerubbabel comes back to Jerusalem with the exiles, there's not that many of them. There's a few thousand. Uh, where are the millions of Jews? They got the good life in Babylon. And they just, you know, the diaspora, they spread throughout the world. Eventually, they picked up business in Babylon, mainly. And anyway, uh, the point is, every time Isaiah mentions captives, he's not talking about Babylon. You have to use the context, and it's an easy mistake. Otherwise, very good commentators would not do it. But a lot of times what happens is the commentators read other commentators. And it's like, ooh, that saves me a lot of work. I'll go with that one. Uh, I try not to do that. I've never made a mistake, so I don't know what it's like. <laughs> of course I'm kidding. Uh, verse 15. But I am Yahweh your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. Yahweh of hosts is his name. So Isaiah adds that second part. He's, God speaking through him, I am Yahweh your God, who divided the sea, uh, whose waves roared, and then Isaiah adds, Yahweh, the host, is his name. Sort of like when Paul goes, you know, the, the, the blessed Savior forever, amen, as he does in, in Romans. Well, this to the Jew is our Matthew chapter eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I've come quite a few times and have not been conscious of rest. Where are you? I've, you said, come to you. And yet I'm still standing. So it works. You know, if it didn't work, I would have been gone long ago. 
And that's the true... There, there are some people that come to Christ and they're uh, shallow conversions. They, the pressure comes. Jesus talked about that in the parable of the sower. And, the, uh, you know, the, they're scorched. They have no depth. And they're gone. So uh, it does work. It just... God has a different perspective on a lot of things. Thus my thoughts, not your thoughts. But they can be known. If you can get the flesh out of the way, you can get hold of them. Verse 16. And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. Well, I love this, I have put my words in your mouth. Because again, you get the people that, well, I don't believe the Bible is written by men. Well, who should it be written by? Alligators? What's your option? Angels? Well, you'd have a problem with them. It didn't work in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God uses people, and which makes it more fantastic that anybody gets saved, that he uses people. We all know about people. Jeremiah chapter 1 Then Yahweh put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And he still does this. Anytime you preach God's word, you say you're sharing your faith with somebody and you're quoting scripture. That's a form of prophecy. It's not predictive prophecy. It's direct, usually, evangelical. But it is God's word. And you are speaking God's word. Singing songs of worship to the Lord is a form of prophecy. Uh, Likely what the daughters of Philip were engaging in. They were singing songs of love to the Lord. So prophecy does not only, is not limited to prediction uh, in Scripture. Uh, Anyway, notice here at the last four words, you, uh, well, that's five. Okay, seven. Can I get eight? Say to Zion, you are my people. Zion is used here as a term for the people themselves. And so that's what I was talking about. It's not a single definition to Zion. There's an evolution of the word. And it's, and, but without losing any of its additions. It's not like, well, it used to be used this way, but now it's used that way. No, it's used that way still, but it's also used in other ways. Uh, today, when you hear of someone saying a Zionist, uh, they're saying someone who believes the Jews should be in the promised land is one usage of that. There are Jews today that are quite infuriated that the Jews are in Israel because they've told themselves that only Messiah can do that. Without basis, they just make these things up like, like rabbinical Judaism kills the faith. Anyway, verse 17, Awake, awake! Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of Yahweh the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. So, this last paragraph, 17 to the end, describes the effects of judgment inflicted on the Jews by God. It's punishment. That's what punishment is. God is obligated. He's said to the world, these are my people. And he's not going to let them get away with uh, defying him to his face in front of everybody without addressing it. And again, imagine if the world said, well, I'm, you know, what is it? Who cares? You do what you want to do. God's not going to do anything. Well, he's going to do something. You can't. When, so when Jesus says, you know, 
there is a very real hell, he's, he's, not, he's not being uh, symbolic. He's being literal. So this is the result of their persistent rebellion against God. And we have in these last sections, 17 to 23, the call to Jerusalem to wake up and stand up because the end of her suffering is approaching. Put your eyes on eternity. Then the next section, he's going to summarize the suffering of the Jews. And then at the end, he's going to say the suffering of the Jews will be turned to the suffering of their enemies. So we'll now look at this. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. A double imperative. Uh, often wasted, just wasted. Uh, they don't want to wake up to Scripture. They want to wake up to what the rabbis say or what they like. You have drunk the, at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. So just because the Jewish people are not obedient to their own Scripture does not mean they're our opponents or enemies. We love Israel because God loves them. His hand is upon them. Uh, they are one of the great, the existence of Israel is one of the greatest proofs for the veracity of God's word. Amen. For the validate that everything here is true. Because you can't explain Israel. You can't. Well, unless you come to the scripture. So here he says, wake up, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of Yahweh's cup and his fury. You, the pronoun here, is feminine singular. And it's throughout this section, this last 17 through 23. And the reason why, he is personifying Jerusalem as the mother city of the Jewish people's um, religion, their belief, their true religion. This is, it's a, it's a, in one hand it's a term of endearment and respect, on the other hand, it's a rebuke because of what they did with this position. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Well, in the Bible, judgment is often pictured as the drinking of a cup of wine. Even Christ, you know, uh, to the disciples, you can't drink this cup. Oh, yeah, we can. Uh, and it's, it's, and anyway, it's in several places. But without question, Israel has been judged according to the scriptures, and we are witnesses of this. So God is using her suffering as a chance to reach lost souls, to keep them from going to hell. But Israel will be glorious as a people. They will be glorious. This is, a, this is going to pass. Um, anyway, verse 18, There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there... Any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. So Jerusalem again depicted as a mother unable to find her way and without assistance. No one to comfort her. A pathetic picture of what has happened to her. No helpers amongst her kings or princes. Her children. Because they're too busy bad-mouthing their own God. It is also a shameful rebuke on children who will not help parents in need. That's like a side one. It's a very serious one. Honor your mom and dad. Uh, or else you're going you're gonna to get it. For, and, 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 you know, that's just good Bible teaching. Verse 19. These two things have come to you. Who will be, who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction. 
famine and sword, by whom will I comfort you? So Isaiah sees ancient Jerusalem's not-too-distant doom. At the time he's ministering, Solomon's temple is still up. The Jews have not experienced a complete overthrow of their land. But he's saying it's coming. It's going to come twice. Solomon's temple, of course, and then there's Zerubbabel's temple, which was expanded by Herod, uh, the wicked Herod. Um, They're gone now. And so this prophecy has been fulfilled. The fury of judgment, not limited to the Babylonians coming against Jerusalem, and then re- and repeated through history. Uh, even now, they're, they're fighting for survival, and they will survive. I'm no doubt about that. Um, we just hope it's thorough enough. We're all saying, please, Jerusalem, please, Israel, don't listen to anybody. Just do what you got to do. That's what we want to see you do. Uh, so anyway, and don't be afraid of anybody. God is with you, even if you're not with him. Because you are part of the prophetic calendar. Anyway, verse 20. Which should, let me pause there. When Jesus said, don't come to me saying, didn't we prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons? And uh, in Christ says, get away from me, I never knew you. See, you can be used by God and not be right with him. You say, well, that scares me. Well, it should, but that's not the whole story because... We're supposed to have assurance of our salvation. No Christian should be walking around, I hope I'm saved, I wonder if I'm saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. But if you're playing games with God, using him to rip people off, using religion to merchandise the people, as Peter said, then you're in that category. I I hear about people getting saved in loony bin churches. Not because of those churches, but because of God's mercy. And I think he just wants to keep me humble, because it's always about me, is it not? Anyway, we have to filter everything in this life through the scripture, because that's what, where it is. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And bread alone is GMO modified anyway, so there you go. Verse 20, your sons have fainted, they lie at the heap of, they lie at the heap of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So God is saying, I'm responsible. They're trapped like a deer. They're powerless because they've been, there's no blessings upon them. And that was that generation. This last generation right now, though, that's not the case. Verse 21, therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. So God's wrath upon the disobedience destabilize them. As he said in in Deuteronomy, you're going to be insane. And it's going to be through my hand. These judgments, I'm not playing with you. All their benefits were to him or from him. And still they treated him with great disrespect, disdain. Isaiah 63, when he ramps up, he's not going to let this go. As we go through Isaiah... God's keeping this in front of us. He says, I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Well, anyway, verse 22. Thus says your Lord, Yahweh, and your God. We have three titles. Adonai, Lord, Yahweh, covenant name of God, and then El, which is 
deity, God. Uh, so he says, thus says the Lord Yahweh your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. Yes, it's coming. There's coming a time when Israel won't have to go through this horrors, the horrors that they've been going through. Jerusalem survives. They survived Babylon. Israel, well, not the Jewish people. They survived Babylon, Assyria, and they, will, they have survived all the attempts to get them off the earth. The Islamic world has been uh, blunt. We want to push Israel into the sea. This is no longer uh, something that is uh, centered in uh, the Islamic world, in the Middle East. It is coming out of Oxford. It is coming out of Harvard and Yale. They are giving these people platforms to push this stuff. It is diabolical. And God is bringing to the surface through the COVID. He's saying, let me show you how Antichrist can lay his fingers on every part of the world. You had people in the jungles wearing masks. And now, well, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it sounds good. Uh, And then, pretty much though, you had people on these remote islands out in the Atlantic Ocean that had no contact with anybody wearing masks. Uh, and then you have, uh, um, I don't know what I was saying. Um, it's, let's just wrap this up. Oh, I know what I was saying. So God has demonstrated the hatred of Satan towards his people. He has demonstrated that Antichrist will be able to globalize the world unlike ever before. Uh, Napoleon and the, the, the others just, would be envious of the power that Antichrist will have. Verse 23, but I will, put it, I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you. That cup with the dregs, the, the bottom, the look of it. Who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. That would be the United Nations. Continuing on, uh, United Nations against Israel. Incidentally, what kind of sign is right across from the United Nations? And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. This is a big lie. They've got this Jewish scripture right across from the United Nations uh, talking about peace when they're saying, really, we're going to beat you into submission. Uh, And it's the way it is. Proof is everywhere, and there are those who don't want to see it. Anyway, uh, where was I? Verse 23. And you have laid your body like the ground. I need to reread verse 23. We're almost done. But I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, lie down, that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground. And as the street for those who walk over. So there are those who just want to trample them. And he's going to put an end to this, and he's going to make them, the enemies, they're going to be the ones that get trampled in the end. I've read it several times in the last few Wednesdays. I'm going to skip it, but I'll give you the coordinates. Zechariah 12, 2, 3, where it says, All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. I'm leaving out much of the verse, but that's the end part. Let's pray. Our Father, we can't miss how important your word is. 
how critical it is to serve you with all we have, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We thank you for the word. We appeal to you for your Holy Spirit to be upon us, to fill us and use us. And we also ask to get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.